Hi, this is Todd Haymore, Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry for the Commonwealth of Virginia. I listen to Heritage Radio Network. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's program is being brought to you by Fairway Market. For more information, visit FairwayMarket.com. Hello, everybody. This is The Main Course. I'm Patrick Martins, your host. We're engineered and produced by Jack Inslee. Jack, are you there? I'm here. We have a really good show today. We have uh, a chef I'm a, a big personal fan of, Nick Anderer. He's the executive chef of Maialino Restaurant, which is one of the restaurants in the Danny Meyer Empire. Jack, actually, did you see Danny Meyer on the cover of Wine Spectator this month? Oh, wow. No, I didn't. It was like a 70-page article. No, I'm exaggerating. But it was a very, very, very long article in it uh, about Danny and his work, especially with wine. And Anne Saxelby had a nice one-page article. I think she's been here before. She has been. But it was really cool to see, you know, Anne and uh, Danny Meyer be in the same magazine, you know, because he obviously supports her with uh, purchases of her cheeses. But uh, let's see what else uh, What else has happened. We're also going to have Alexandra Rowley on, which is exciting. She's a photographer. So we're going to be showing all her great best photos in studio here for all of our viewers to see. Well, before we start, what's up with the Michigan pigs? You were telling me about that earlier. The Michigan pig thing actually turned out turns out that it could be a little bit more serious than we previously thought because it did just seem so absurd that there would be you know yeah. uh, desire to exterminate genetic diversity you know in the state of Michigan and you know kill innocent farm pigs just didn't seem too absurd but. Katie Kiefer uh, has done some research and she actually finds out that the, you know, no one is actually changing or rewriting the law. You know, it's just funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, because once this issue was brought up, you would think that right away the governor's office or, you know, people like that, the Department of Agriculture would come in and be like, hey, time out. We, we screwed up. Uh, you know, we didn't mean heritage breed pigs. We just truly meant destructive feral swine populations. Um, you know, so they didn't change the act. And then she found out that the people behind this kind of, um, you know, indirect way of, you know, possibly killing heritage breed hogs in the state of Michigan, the people behind this is the Michigan pork producers, the Michigan milk producers, the corn growers. And this company called Greenstone Lending. So how interesting. These big companies, you know, is it possible that, uh, you know, they're trying to eliminate any competition or, you know, attacks on the quality of their commodity products by actually literally exterminating the competition? Well, there's a lot to to figure out here, Jack. Uh, And isn't that going to be the topic of Katie's show? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Katie will definitely follow up on this more. Yeah, Uh, she's kind of our 
person you know out there and for listeners that are really into the policy stuff on that level uh straight no chaser which follows the main course is a great listen yeah she's our best policy show right anyone else really get into policy not so much um you know the farm report sometimes right but um it's more about the farmer whereas katie's looking big picture what about erica wides is uh no, no policy on that no show. policy that's just no. gastronomy right yeah, well, interesting. So um, give us an update on the network. Jack, you're president now of heritageradionetwork.org. It's hard to keep a straight face when I say that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but uh, so tell me, what's, uh, give me some news. Well, you can donate on the website. That's pretty cool now. Okay. Yeah. So we, as, as we've said before, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and now you can actually make a donation. So if you go to the homepage and click donate, then uh, you can support but there's work. more than that, Jack. You've been unleashed. Your creative potential has been Indeed. unleashed through post-production. Now you right. have your own tech serve. Actually, was very, very generous to us Absolutely. and donated all this equipment to us, including really fancy computers, so that Jack could basically post-produce more, more along the lines of what you do for Jessica B. Harris, right? Right. Yeah. The idea, uh, at least right now, is to kind of take the best moments from the shows and edit them down into very quick two-minute one minute clips so that we can spread those around and eventually we'll get more into op-ed sort of uh in-depth post-produced pieces do you have an example of one of these two minute pieces yeah i'm gonna play this now this is uh our good friend marion nestle who is what the, a nutritionist and the founder of the nutrition school uh of food studies at nyu right yeah one of the top food thinkers in the world for sure. And uh, these, this is her thoughts on uh, why we have an obesity epidemic right now. Here's my oversimplified way of explaining why obesity became a problem starting in the early 1980s. Three things happened. The first was deregulation of agriculture, where the Department of Agriculture, which used to pay farmers not to grow food, right. to keep fields fallow, started paying farmers to grow as much food as they possibly could and to reward them for the amount they produced. Our farmers are very good at doing what they're supposed to do. They produced more. And the number of calories in the food supply went from 3,200 in 1980 to 3,900 20 years later. The second thing that happened was essential deregulation of Wall Street in a way where prior to uh, the early 1980s, Wall Street used to value blue chip stocks. You never hear a word about blue chip stocks anymore. These were stocks that gave long, slow, endless returns on investment. In 1981, Jack Welch, who was then head of General Electric, made a speech in which he said, enough of this blue chip stock stuff. Uh, we want higher returns on investment now. Um, and so Wall Street changed the way in which it started evaluating corporations, and we see the disastrous results that that has had in Wall Street now. But for food companies, it was extraordinarily difficult. They were already competing heavily. But now they not only had to make a profit, they had to make profits every 90 days and report growth to Wall Street. 
not just profit to Wall Street, but growth to Wall Street every 90 days. Um, So that put even more pressure on food companies. And then the third area of deregulation was in marketing, where there was a real pullback on restrictions on marketing foods with health claims and other kinds of things, so that food companies could use these um, marketing openings to promote their products in ways they never had before. And the ways they chose to uh, sell more food was, first of all, larger portions, then putting food everywhere. And I love to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? I assure you, it's since the 1980s. Right. When did vending machines go into schools? When did Dwayne Reed become a grocery store um, or Staples? which now has a grocery section, um, or clothing stores. You can buy food at clothing stores. I mean, it's just weird. Um, So food is everywhere, and it turns out the things that make people eat more food are being given more food and having food right there. Yeah, so there you have it. Oh, my God, that is so funny. When was it okay to eat food at bookstores? It is gross. People eating like a tuna fish sandwich in the... Oh, my God. (laughs) That is very, very funny. Okay, that was really good to hear that summary from Marion. So how did you do that? How many shows did that come from? That's only one show, but, you know, she may say that that over 10 minutes, and now we're just trying to parse that down to a more listenable two minutes so it can be more viral. That was actually the best I had heard, Marion. Because, you know, of course, academics always risk, uh, you know, getting too academic. And really, you know, what we want is a, you know, a short message. Right. I mean, I will say one thing. uh, You know, the biggest reason that, uh, you know, I have my political affiliations as I do is because of this, you know, one basic fact, you know, not everybody starts out the same. Not everybody starts out the same with the same opportunities, Um, you know, and that needs to get accounted for, you know, through social projects and programs and this and that. And God, you know, when you hear about what happens on Wall Street, uh, these guys have done well in this country and just keep taking and uh it has such reverberations all the way down to as she says that uh you know snack food machine in a third grade classroom i mean good lord who is going to be a moral voice for this country with some balls and and some listeners you know i mean we need well i mean heritage radio network is definitely a member of that team so uh well we're gonna take a break and go from politics to gastronomy and uh, i'm really excited to have uh for the first time on my show nick andrew the executive chef at Mayalino, a roman trattoria so come on back Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market.
Whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd, Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries, they cater. Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information and be sure to check the new blog On Our Plate for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Patrick Martins. This is The Main Course. We're broadcasting at our Roberta's Restaurant, 261 Moore Street in Brooklyn. And I am watching Nick Anderer, the executive chef at Maialino, a Roman trattoria, uh, taste a radicchio salad from uh, Roberta's. It was leftover. They produced one too many and brought it in the studio. What do you think, Nick? Pretty awesome. Yeah? Yeah, if this is leftovers, I want it all the time. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Great to be here. It's been a while, long time coming. I'm yep. surprised it took this long. Yeah, no, it's too bad. Well, hopefully you'll be on a bunch of times over the next years. Um, tell me, uh, how was it? Did you work the shift last night or do you get Saturday nights off? No, I. Uh, weirdly enough, I'm one of the few chefs in the city that gets weekends off now. <laughs> so, how does that work in the restaurant industry? A certain, the higher ups get weekends off. I mean, how, is there rules? It, no, th- there's no rules. I think it all it depends restaurant to restaurant. I think that, you know, with, with our particular restaurant, when I first opened, like most chefs in New York City, you got to like pretend like you have more balls than everybody else and you're going to work more days than everybody else. And that's what I did. And it was kind of a control freak working seven days a week. First in, first out, uh, last out. Exactly. And then once you get settled and, you know, I think part of being a good chef is surrounding yourself with strong cooks, strong leaders. And, mm-hmm. you know, every good chef has a few awesome people behind them, obviously. And I have a few of those folks that work for me that got me the opportunity to start taking weekends off and that's where i'm at right now so how did you break into this line of work uh you know i mean did you uh grow up in danny meyer empire or, or like where did you come from before well i think that's I, a big job to be the executive chef of Mialino. i mean you're one of what eight executive chefs of the danny meyer empire or something close to that yeah correct that's so, a big job it is a, a huge job and a, and a big honor to be working for a guy like that um I got into the business through, uh, actually through my studies at Columbia University. I was a student here in New York City studying art history, and my junior year I ended up in Rome, of all places, studying uh, Renaissance, Baroque, architecture, art, and just found myself eating constantly around the city and just being immersed in the food culture out there. And that's really what hooked me, is the Italian food culture, the way that people think about food out there. It's funny, um, I was listening to, to Garrett Oliver talk to our staff the other day about beer and about... He's a brewmaster going. of Brooklyn Brewery. Exactly. And he came in and he said something pretty cool, which, which you know, struck home for me. He was talking to the staff about um, you know, going to Italy for the first time and talking to people and, and trying to explain to an Italian brewmaster what a foodie was. Um, and he said that they just were baffled by that you know, terminology because he said, well, what, what exactly is a foodie? This is the Italian guy talking. said, so what is a foodie? And so he tells him, well, it's somebody that like lives, breathes, and you know, just is always thinking about food and wine. And he's like, well, that's, that's everybody. That's, <laughs> that's what we all do here. So exactly. they couldn't you know, get that concept. And so I think Italy, I, you, know, you, get, you, you just walk around and you just like, live and breathe. The whole like, local thing is like, not even something people talk about. It's just something that people live and do. And so when I got back here to the States after going through those art history studies, I said, you know what? I really want to try cooking and see what, see what that will we'll do for me, of course. So you abandoned the art world for the <laughs> culinary world. I mean, exactly. that's, and my wife did the same thing, and uh, she just got yeah. too fed up with the pretentiousness of, uh, you know, the fine arts and this and that, so she got into food. But, I mean, did you feel you were 
violating everything you had gone to school for and studied for and built your career around up until that point? Not at all. I mean, I was uh, I had an eclectic array of studies. I was doing art history. I was doing finance. I was doing Italian language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just said to myself, well, what are the things that I've been doing here in college that really, you know, resonate with me? What are the things that get my juices flowing? And, you know, I did, I did a job down on Wall Street, hated it. Um, loved the art thing and I always loved eating and so I tried to tie the two together mm-hmm. and that's how I sort of you know, re- came to that you know, realization where I was like yeah you know what if I actually spend some time in kitchens it might actually lead somewhere because I know that I'll have a passion for it so where did you get your first job? I started working for a guy named Buzzy O'Keefe who uh, back then was you know well, I mean, still is sort of a New York City restaurant legend he's opened up the River Cafe, hmm. the Water Club, Pershing Wow, a Square. lot of chefs have come out of the River Cafe over the years. Exactly. It's almost like New York's version of Chez Panisse, right? Just producing so many chefs. Absolutely, yeah. It was, it's, uh, the, the alumni list there is pretty prestigious. Um, so I ended up working at the Water Club and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I got bitten by the bug immediately in terms of just the hustle and bustle of restaurant kitchen life and so i you, you liked know, it i loved it it's like I a think. pirate ship uh, mark ladner told me once it's like <laughs> a pirate ship down there and he loved it i mean is that what do you love about the pace or the i think that initially you know as a you know 21 year old kid you like the pace you liked the glamorization of you know chef life you know working long hours and having lots of beer after your shift uh, and so I just got bitten initially by that. You know, that, that's all it really takes to get somebody to keep coming back and keep doing it for, I'd say, six months to a year. But beyond that, you need something else. And I think I didn't get that something else right away at the Water Club. I had to uh, see other places, see other things. And, you know, there was a, a chef there by the name of Mitsu Kikuchi, who I attribute a lot of my success to, who uh, a lot of people wouldn't even recognize his name or know who he is. But he was, uh, you know, a Japanese chef who at the time was uh, responsible for... Uh, I, I believe a large part of you know fusion cuisine, which was really hot back then. Mm-hmm. This is like you know 15 years ago, um, and he sort of I don't know why took me under his wing and told me you know what you got to get out of here and go check out to see what some other chefs are doing. So hmm. he hooked me up with Larry Forjone. Okay, and I started working for Larry Forjone for several years, and it was sort of at the tail end of Larry's really sort of prime time career. It was post all the James Beard awards and all all the the accolades that he had received. And so I had a great time working for him for about a year, year and a half, um, and then somehow stumbled upon um, uh, Mario Batali and Babo as they were opening up. And uh, that's where I sort of saw my sort of like homecoming to Italian cuisine and Italian culture. And that's, that's what really, I think, sort of catapulted me into like, okay, now I'm really going to be a chef. So I you wasn't were right quite there because sure Babo is uh, a more important restaurant than people think. I mm-hmm. think, and it's still viewed as a very important restaurant. So, I mean, but it still doesn't get the credit that it's due because back then, I mean, every, the whole city was dying to get into that place. And I mean, what was it doing that was so unusual? I mean, what attracted you most to it? It's, I mean, yeah, you bring up a good point about Babo. I mean, I, I, I rarely take the time to actually put it into perspective, but when you think about it, Babo uh, kind of represented for New York City a sort of resurgence or rebirth of, or maybe not even a rebirth, because maybe there was never a birth to begin with, of Italian fine dining or, mm-hmm. you know, a, Italian, you know, uh, just just high-level cuisine. Uh, people think about uh, Italian food in New York as, you know, red sauce, check tablecloths, and uh, but not necessarily associate it with, you know, the, the big dogs of the industry. And, you know, Mario Batali, I think what he was doing was taking 
you know, uh, everything that he learned about traditional Italian regional cuisines and trying to combine it in one recipe. He was taking on a huge task. I mean, if you think about it, Babo isn't any one specific region of Italian food. It's just his take on many different regions and like a greatest hits, if yeah, you will. Yeah, but it has, a, has about 100 things on the menu, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't just have 10. Well, by the way, that reminds me, you just bring this up. We have a Twitter question. Am I allowed to say? I don't even know what this means. It's <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Uh, the, the handle was No Tables B. No Tables B. Yeah, Nick, there you go. tell us the secret of your cacio e pepe. Oh, man. Should I tell all on this radio show? Let's see about one key ingredient. <laughs> well, I mean, there's three key ingredients. I think everybody knows the key ingredients. It's all about the technique and bringing it together. I mean, you got the black pepper, you have the pasta, and you have the cheese. And that's all. I mean, those, those are the, that's the backbone, the, the materia prima, as they say in Italian. Mm-hmm. And you want to get really good black pepper, fresh, coarsely ground. You want to have really good pecorino romano. And it's important that you get the right kind of pecorino romano. Either I would recommend Fulvi or Lopez which are two of the three major uh, pecorinos that are still made around Rome. I mean, most of, most pecorino romanos are now being done in Sardinia, which okay. is not a bad thing at all. It's just that these particular ones are sort of the old-style, barnyardy, salty type that really work well for this pasta dish. And then, of course, the pasta. The choice of pasta is, I think, crucial. Um, a lot of people like using a dried spaghetti. I prefer making a house-made tonarelli, which is like a fresh sort of square-cut spaghetti. Um, and I think the key to making the dish is just having that right balance of pasta water, cheese, and black pepper in the right proportions. Mm-hmm. And now, I can uh, explain it, but nobody's ever going to get it unless they actually try to make it themselves. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> you can go on. I mean, this we got a question. So, I mean, if you have anything more to say about it, I'd love to hear it. I like to start in a pan, uh, a dry pan, with just a touch of olive oil and a few cracks of the black pepper so that you start to actually sizzle the black pepper in the oil. It just releases a little bit more of the, the you know, the, the, the volatile oils in the peppercorns themselves. Deglaze that pan with some pasta water. Um, add the tonarelli once it's cooked, or the spaghetti if you're using spaghetti. I'm not going to hold anybody um, you know, hostage, hostage to your pasta <laughs> philosophies. <laughs> and then once the pasta hits the pan with that pasta water infused with the oil-toasted pepper, uh, let it simmer together for about 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, make sure that there's still enough residual water um, underneath that pasta in the pan so that you can actually make a sauce. Um, and if there's not, add a little more pasta water. And then you add your cheese at the last moment off the heat until it starts to thicken up that pasta water and then serve mm. right away. So it's interesting. If someone were to follow all these rules and do it a 100 times with you watching, a 100 times and add the water if they need to, will that person then make the pasta as well as you? Or is there a certain, you know, je ne sais quoi, magic, palate? Like, I mean, is it about rule following? Or I always hear that there's few chefs that go a little past that somehow. It's about repetition, I think. And I think, you know, this is a very simple dish at the end of the day. Technique is everything. And I think your palate is everything and being able to taste and know what was off. I had too much cheese this time. It's too gluey. Oh, this time it didn't have enough cheese. It wasn't salty enough. Mm-hmm. And so developing that palate and developing, you know, the the muscle memory of making the dish is important. I mean, the reason why chefs are so good at things, I think, is because they do things Practice. hundreds of times yeah. a day, whereas at home you usually do it once, you know? That's a good point. <laughs> and then you make don't make the same dish for 6 months, so you might make a dish 3 times a year. Exactly. And- um, so how is Maialino different from other restaurants in New York or the country? And how is it different from other restaurants within Danny's empire, Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe? I mean, the, the first thing that 
I mean, a chef would point to, I think, is that it's a very specific focused cuisine. Um, uh, it's kind of nice as a chef to open a restaurant that is that specific focus because you know exactly what your goals and what your targets are. We do Roman-style food. Uh, now, that's not to say that um, doing Roman-style food is the be-all, end-all because we're in New York City. We can't have access to all the same ingredients they have in Rome. And we, we say to ourselves, at least as chefs, sous chefs, and people doing the ordering and the purchasing, we're a New York City restaurant first and foremost, basically seeing the cuisine through the looking glass of a Roman-style trattoria. Um, so, you know, that, that focus makes us a little different than a lot of restaurants. I think there's a lot of Italian restaurants out there that are doing just, you know, large-scale, broad-strokes Italian food. We're pretty specific, I think. We try to archive recipes. We try to really read up on what Romans were doing back mm-hmm. when, what they're doing now. In fact, we go back, I go back at least once a year to Rome just to eat around and see what's going on there just as inspiration. Is it changing what's going on in Rome or is it just staying the same? It, I mean, a or is little it getting bit of both. Worse? A little bit of both. Well, and that too. I mean, I, I, I would actually venture to say, and I hope I don't offend any uh, native Romans here, that you know, a lot of the craft of Roman cuisine has sort of, or the passion for it, at least in restaurants, has been sort of waning over the past you know, 10, 20 years because a lot of the restaurants that have opened maybe 30, 40 years ago have gone through different iterations of the kitchen to the point now where things are just sort of status quo and there's not as much creative juices going into the kitchen. Now, you know, when I say creative juices, I don't mean that you, know, you have to have cooks in there that are inventing new things because that's not what they're about. I'm just talking about the, you know, the execution of a dish and making sure that it's the same every day and it has that love put into it. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's harder now in Rome to find those right restaurants to go to where you can get that good traditional cooking. There's a few, um, and I visit them every t- every single time I go. Well, you're lucky. Uh, you get to go to Rome like when uh, Mike Anthony goes to travel somewhere. He just goes upstate New York or something like that. <laughs> That's good that you're doing the Roman. It's hard work. So... Um, it, I mean, there, I, I know there's got to be because that's what makes a restaurant successful, I think. But is there competition or, you know, how do you define the healthy competition amongst the various chefs at the various restaurants? And um, yeah, I'm interested. I was going to ask a few more questions about, you know, what restaurant specializes in what. But first, tell us about this, you know, competitive, competitive energy that exists. Well, I mean, I think... I personally think it's crucial. I feed off competitive energy. I was an athlete both through high school and college, and and yeah, anybody what did that you knows play? me, basketball, track, uh, but mainly basketball. Okay. And yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of those things that, particularly in a very sort of testosterone-driven environment like the kitchen is, it keeps people honest. It's like uh, this, there's this guy right next to me that's like cooking circles around me. I better speed up or. There's this guy that really has a palate that it goes beyond, like, how did he just make that dish better mm-hmm. than I just did? So c- competition is definitely healthy. Um, yeah, just like anything, like the use of salt, you know, too much is no good and too little is no good. you got to have it just right. Mm-hmm. Um, so being a chef in New York City, you got to balance both internally in your kitchen, the level of competition, and then also the way that you sort of you know, project yourself out in the public because mm-hmm. it's a very public thing now, cooking is, especially in New York City. Everybody knows everybody's business, and and yes, we are competitive with each other, but we got to make sure that there's also a camaraderie. Yeah, for sure. Well, which restaurant cures the most? No, let's name the restaurants. I mean, in Danny Meyer's Empire, you're talking. Yeah, Blue Smoke, Blue Smoke. Uh, Gramercy, Gramercy Tavern, Tavern, Union Square Cafe, uh, Tab, well, North End Tabla, Grill, yeah, North End Grill now, Mylino, the Modern, 
the modern. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, of course, the Shake Shack. Shake Shack's right. But we're not going to include the Shake Shacks because <laughs> I bet that makes more mo- a lot of money. But uh, who, uh, which cu- restaurant cures the most? I mean, is it the Roman one? Is that, um, was it created to start a curing program in a way? That, that, that's a tough question to answer. I mean, we do a lot of curing. Uh, Gramercy Tavern does a lot of curing. Um, I know that the modern has worked with charcuterie as well. And it's the same thing with Union Square Cafe. I think that through different phases of their menu, consistently across the board, I'd probably say that Gramercy Tavern and Mayalino do the most curing. Mm-hmm. Um, Gramercy maybe a little bit more than, than we do now at Mayalino, simply because of the size of the kitchen and the amount of, uh, of product that they can bring in. And the more whole pigs you bring in, you know, the more charcuterie you're going to have to produce because how, mm-hmm. how else do you go through that much fresh pig in one week? Will you bring <laughs> in other people's charcuterie? Like uh, uh, La Quercia or Batali? We do. We, like, for example... Uh, with guanciale, which is a backbone of so many different Roman pastas, you know, Cured the Bucatina Machuchana. Exactly. So there's only so many pig cheeks that we can get. I can't get in enough whole pigs to maintain the level of, you know, pig cheeks I need. So turning to somebody like La Quercia, it's funny mm-hmm. you brought up that name, is, is useful for us. Mm-hmm. They produce a, a really great guanciale uh, that, that is, yeah, it's, it's, it's like salt or pepper for us. We need it. <laughs> Which uh, restaurant does the most volume? Like, wh- which restaurant cycles the most people through it after Shake Shack? After Shake Shack, that's a good question. I, I would, I would guess Blue Smoke. I actually don't know the exact answer to that mm-hmm. question, but I would guess Blue Smoke just because of the the speed of their table turns. So, uh, and then which is uh, which one has the longest tenured chef? Huh. Is that Carmen? At Union I think Square? it would have to be. I think it's Carmen. Yeah, I gave that question some thought there for a second because you know Mike Anthony's been there for about five, six years now. Carmen's been there for longer. Um, it's it's either Carmen or or Gabriel up at the Modern. At the Modern, man, yeah. I saw Carmen one day, and he was you know he's a harried fellow to begin with. You know, he's always running around, and uh, you know he's a little intense and worried that the, you know things always have to be the best. And one time he was racing out of Union Square, I came in for a drink, and he was actually going to bring a meal to one of his best customers who was you know dying and at the hospital, mm. and uh, you know just to see that a guy in the middle of the day you know puts that you know as a priority, I I, I thought that was. Uh, you know, really touching, and I always remembered that he did that. So, um, is each kitchen run differently, or you know, is each one run the same? I mean, how does the hierarchy of the kitchen work at Mylino? Uh, very, very differently, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's so many things that go into the way you establish a hierarchy in a kitchen. A lot of it's the chef's personality, but then a lot of it also is physical space. I mean, you were bringing up Carmen and Union Square Cafe. I mean, them. They have this tiny little kitchen, which, you know, uh, it's, it's amazing how they're able to put out what they do there. And so the way that your line is designed, the way that the, the, the setup of the kitchen is, will, will sort of define how many sous chefs you're going to have running the pass, how many line cooks you're going to have running each service. And, and so therefore establish uh, a system of hierarchy just because of the physical space. Mm-hmm. So how is your hierarchy? I mean, and how do you embrace creativity from your team? I mean, how does it work? We, we at, at Mylino were, were blessed with a big space, but a really, uh, I think, poorly organized space. We walked into a, a kitchen that was a, a Chinese kitchen first. Uh, the space that is Mylino now used to be Wakia, which was a, uh, a Chinese restaurant. Um, and uh, when they closed, uh, they left all of their beautiful equipment behind and beautiful setup, but it was designed for, for wok cooking. 
and we had to redesign the line, reconfigure low boys, turn them around, and refrigeration. Mm-hmm. Everything had to be sort of switched around, and so we inherited the space that, you know, uh, had had a lot of physical space but uh, challenges. And so, what we came up with was a system where we had about now, now about four hotline cooks, those are the guys that are doing all the hot food, two cold cooks that do both um, uh, garmanger and sort of like salads and salumis. And then uh, assisted with two sous chefs every single night. So on any given night, you'll walk in there and you'll see, what does that add up to? Seven, eight, eight people altogether, two of whom are sous chefs. And the sous chefs function are there to, uh, to both expedite and also to taste the food. One is there just to call out orders and get food up to the front pass at the same time. And the other person's job is to plate and to taste things. Mm. And I think that's, a, that's a, a nice system and a luxury for us to be able to have. I mean, a lot of people don't have two, three sous chefs working the front pass on any given night just because of physical limitation. We have space, and so we do that. We always have a minimum of two sous chefs and usually the addition of myself there. So there's really three chefs, let's say, accountable for all the food that goes out on any given Mm. night. So um, we'll take a break in a second, but before uh, we go to break, I want to ask, so did Danny, when Danny hired you, I mean, what did he... uh you know, invite you to his house and, you know, tell you, hey, I want you to be the chef of this new restaurant? Or, I mean, how does that work? What's his relationship with these uh, eight guys? I think it's, it's, it's pretty personal. I mean, he, he, with Mylino in particular, there was a lot, we had several conversations about the, uh, the, the specific restaurant. And I think what we found out is that we had this personal connection in common with the fact that we did the exact same program in college about 20 years apart. And I had not known that until we had started talking about this. We both did this Trinity College Rome campus program. That was, we both had this shared love affair for Roman food, Roman culture. And so through several conversations, the, I think the idea of this restaurant just sort of came to be. That's all you had to say. When, once you said you took that same program, he was like, yeah. you're like, this is a slam dunk. No, Absolutely. I'm kidding. But um, anyway, well, let's take a break. And um, I want to come back and ask what dish you would serve to the president if he all came right. into Mialino or what meal. So we'll take a break and come back in a second. Will somebody hear me now? Listen to what I have to say I speak about a secret crime That happens day to day He comes upon us from behind And right before us boldly walks He's just for the idle minds And whispers evil thoughts He's nothing that you can see All right, we're back. Very interesting conversation. Uh, We're sponsored by Fairway. Broadcasting out of 261 Moore Street, Roberta's. We got an on-air up button. Good job, Jack. Oh, thanks. That only took two years. 
of me asking. No, just kidding. It, it was actually very hard to hook up, but uh, it looks great. Also very hard to find. This is one of the original on-air lights that they would actually use in a radio station. So Everyone's being very quiet outside because of that on-air exactly. light. Exactly. So, uh, Nick, if uh, you had to... So, President Obama's coming in with uh, Michelle, who, by the way, Michael Pollan was just on my show a few weeks ago, and he says that if he did one one-hundredth of what she did for food... You know, the the whole country would be in, in a different state. But um, so they come in uh, with their two girls. What what do you serve them? I'd want to serve them the, the the greatest hits of New York City. I mean, we are a Roman style trattoria, but I'd want them to taste what we do from the market. And I think that's you know, I think anybody who's cooking for the president is going to want to show that off. Uh, if if you care at all about food or where agriculture is going and that's i mean it would be my responsibility to do that now that being said it's like i don't like to change my agenda based on the customer i like to do i like to play to our strengths i want them to have a great meal i want them to taste the cacio pepe and some of the roman classics but then i want to make them a killer salad i'm going to want to make them some sort of killer heritage pork right mm-hmm. and of course <laughs> of course and but uh, uh, yeah. wait a second can you just do a whole meal all off menu i mean how does that work of I mean, course you I, w- I mean we we uh, sometimes we get requests from customers that we don't know about doing a tasting menu now we don't have a tasting menu on our menu it's a very very traditional roman trattoria setup the way that the right. menu is designed people ask we do it when friends and family come in i often offer it um and that's a fun thing for the chefs to do it's a great opportunity for us to to show off a little bit you know mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting. Well, I also know that uh, Mayalino is connected to the Gramercy Park Hotel. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be this new these new marriages between good restaurants and good hotels, like Hotel Americano, Hotel Vitali on the West Coast, uh, the Breslin here mm-hmm. in New York. Um, so is it a match made in heaven, or does that type of volume and service, you know, kind of challenge the kitchen more than it can bear? Yeah, it's funny. My brother is actually the general manager at the Breslin, uh, the restaurant there. So we compare notes a lot about uh-huh. our relationships with hotels, and which can be sort of for a lot of people a love hate kind of thing, um, and particularly because of the image that they put off. I think for a long time in New York City, people didn't associate hotel restaurants with good restaurants, and uh, you know, I think that what we're seeing now is that there are more people starting to take it seriously They're like you know what why does being in a hotel just living and occupying that physical space mean that we can't do something with integrity and i think that's what we've established at the gramercy park hotel i mean we function as an autonomous independent restaurant we don't function as a as a hotel amenity it's, this mm-hmm. is something that we do uh just because we think that that space deserves something awesome but they, you do still deliver it to the room on a cart, right? We Not have you. a selection of things. And I think that's an interesting thing, too, is that chefs are becoming uh, people now who can be assertive enough and have enough power, really, to tell hoteliers and general managers, hey, you know what? These things don't travel well to rooms, so let's just not do them. Let's do a small selection of things. These are the things that I can do really well. So take these three dishes and be happy with them because that's what the customer's going to be happy with. They don't so want tell them. us what works and what doesn't. Like souffles, I bet, do not work. Souffles don't work. <laughs> really um, uh, like intricate or like fine-sauced pastas don't work. Things that need to sort of maintain temperature for 18 stories. Hmm. So whole roasted animals work great because they're going to taste good now. They're going to taste good an, an hour from now, to be honest with you. Um, even if they cool down a little bit, a whole roasted suckling pig is going to always be really good. Um, so we look for those sort of large format things. We look for um, pastas that don't rely as much on temperature, things like that are uh, you know baked pastas and things like that. Lasagnas travel well. 
So who comes in? So someone places an order, and then you prepare it, and then you just knock on the door, and some guy uh, take it up? Yeah, I personally deliver each and every meal that goes to those rooms. Unbelievable, right? And cut the steak for the children, I hear. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's another tricky thing, though, is, is the, how, how does the food get to the room? It's Because, you know, you're preparing it, and then a, uh, a hotel employee uh, of the Gramercy Park Hotel comes and takes it to the room, and... and so for a chef, it's like, that's like you know watching like sending your kid off to school for the first time, and mm-hmm. you're like watching the, the this guy who you don't know and never met before take the kid away. Oh no, like, man, what the hell's gonna happen to my kid? <laughs> you're like, you better get up there in four minutes or less. <laughs> Put on your running shoes, buddy. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing. Well, um, this has been a great interview. I mean, you got to come back because I mean we didn't even go through the full interview, but um, I'm always interested to have when we have uh, famous, you know, important chefs here uh, for our younger listeners to do a search for you know becoming a chef or you know what's it like working in the food industry. You know, tell our young listeners something that that you think they should know about kitchen work. Basically, I think first and foremost, you got to think three, four, five, six times before you decide to get into the restaurant industry. I think there's so many different avenues in the food industry, but the restaurant business is hard, hard, hard. And and uh, every single person who's a personal friend of mine, I usually tell them, go do a couple trails in a kitchen. Don't accept the job until you've seen what they actually do. Work for free if you have to and see what that life is like. And ask yourself, can I put up with this for the next 10 years of my life without making any money? Mm-hmm. If the answer to that is yes, then go for it. So you're like, play, play it safe, become an actor. Don't uh, don't try to break into the kitchen industry. Well, um, it's good that we kind of made this transition, uh, you know, into the the hotels, the the style, you know, the fashion things. Because we also have in studio today Alexandra Rowley, who I haven't seen in many years, but I who I've know known for like twenty, right? Yeah, I met you on the metro in Paris when we were both doing a study abroad program. Junior year abroad. Yeah, wow. Exactly. So that is 20, 30, 40, 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, you yeah, look I was, great. I was 19. Thank you. All right. Um, so you have gone on to great things in the food world. Well, yeah, I'm a photographer. I'm an artist and photographer and also an art history major, actually. And um, I do work that's exhibited in galleries. I do work that's in magazines. And also I do ad work. And I've been working on a personal project lately called Made in New York. Or mm-hmm. New yeah, York, tell us New York about Made. that. It's really, um, you know, my interest in New York stuff is about having grown up here, born and raised in Manhattan, and my mother was from an Italian family that emigrated in the early part of the 20th century. My father's family is Dutch and French, and um, my mom, you know, used to go to Ferrara as a kid on Grand Street, and that was like their Sunday fun. Mm -hmm. And her father was a butcher. And just growing up, you know, we always went to Chinatown to buy food. We went to the meat market on Ninth Avenue. Um, Lots of different things. And when my father died, I was going. I was doing a project that I eventually exhibited in Miami and in Paris and elsewhere. And I went through his checkbook ledgers from the 1950s through the present, and I found all these businesses, many of which are still around. Like wow, Saks you look to see all the businesses that he supported through every, his check ledger. Yeah, every wow. transaction. I did these composite images using his check ledgers that are kind of Agnes Martin-esque. But, did Citibank um, hate when you called? You're like, could no, I get all my man, dad's records chemical. back to 1958, No, please? he had them in his top drawer, <laughs> okay, if you can believe it. And he had places like um, Leonard's Fish Market and Rosedale Fish Market that, you know, are fishmongers that are still around. Sure. And 
Meanwhile, I was living in the East Village near Union Square, thinking more and more about where my food came from as I went to the farmer's market, and also um, watching the city losing so much manufacturing, but also so so many businesses that were longstanding and had endured, like Little Wolf Cabinet Shop on uh, 82nd Street, which has been there since 1956, and... Then newer businesses, um, clothiers on Orchard Street, mm-hmm. who are you know plummeting the history of manufacturing in the garment industry in the Lower East Side. So the project really embraces edible, drinkable, wearable, and durable. And meanwhile, I was also shooting businesses for commissions, you know, editorially for magazines like Satter Farms. Um, shooting chefs like Lydia Bastianich and um, lots of different chefs, but. Yeah. But uh, the, something about that New York. I mean, I remember on the Upper East Side, I was born, uh, you know, on I lived on 80th Street between 5th and Madison and then 81st Street and Madison until I was basically 18. And uh, I remember my first memories of walking down Madison Avenue with my mom. I mean, there was a brownie shop. Yep, Greenberg's there, still yeah, there. Yeah, Sweet Temptation, which yep. sold two bazookas for a penny. I mean, I, even back then, I thought that was absurd. Like, yep. that was just too cheap. And to think that all these places stayed in business. And the first change, the first hint of change was Eli's, who Absolutely. made good bread. And then of the fashion, it was Agnes B, which was like a few years before it seemed like anybody else. Now, of course, the thought of a brownie maker on 80th and Madison is just ridiculous. Well, Greenberg is still there, believe it or not. Oh, Greenberg is, yeah. yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned Eli Zabar because I feel like he and people like Sarah Beth Levine... Sarah Beth's Kitchen, right, in that hotel. Exactly. And they were starting to make stuff in the 80s. And then in the 90s, I was working in Soho and... Jim Leahy started Sullivan Street Bakery, and oh, I yeah. would go there and get my lunch. So I feel like my project really embraces this continuity. And so it, how do people go on to read more about it? Is, uh, do you have a website? Um, you know, I haven't really put much up yet because it's it's really – I'm keeping it under my hat for now. But um, it's going to be a book. Okay. And – um, so keep informed. I, you can look on at my that. website alexandrarowley.com and my agent's website fauchéartist.com. Now, didn't you but almost die in a hurricane when you were shooting Satter Farms? <laughs> I didn't almost die, but yeah, I had an assignment to shoot Satter Farms in 2005, and it was—I remember it well because it was right before I got married, and there were tons of hurricanes coming up the coast. And this was in the age of film, and this is in the age before smartphones, so I couldn't check what was going on with the weather on my phone. So mm. my agent was calling me from Manhattan saying, Don't okay, go. it's starting to drizzle. You better shoot the, the fruit soup now. And meanwhile, the food stylist is in the kitchen, Alison Attenborough, throwing together really beautiful food with, Satter- with Paulette's greens and her produce. And, you know, the prop stylist is preparing this beautiful table outside for this staged entertaining story and I was so inspired by Paulette and Eberhard because I feel like they were the first real incarnation of farm to table couple I mean they had this synergy where she would grow things and he would use them at his restaurant Bayard's Hmm. and it was just amazing to see that so you know you got to get the shots as a photographer I mean much like what Nick was saying I think the key to what I do is consistency and I need to make sure I deliver so I don't go anywhere without this clear plastic tarp in my tripod bag. And as it started to drizzle, just as we were getting ready to prepare the food shots, um, my assistants and the stylist held up the tarp, and I shot almost all the food outside under this tarp. Hmm. And then threw tarps over the table, and just as the guests arrived, everything cleared up, and 
you know, later I was able to use Photoshop to drop a bluer sky mm-hmm. into the background. But nice. it worked out. And so. then uh, you shot Lydia Bastianich on the shortest day of the year, and then she got angry with you and got you in a half Nelson. And no, you got in no. A big fight. She was lovely. She's an amazing, amazing woman, a total legend. But no, we walked into her kitchen. It was probably the darkest day in December, and we had a really long shot list. And I had, an, again, an amazing food stylist, Liza Journo, on my team. And she, you know, I was told that I could light if it was dark. Um, and I really am well known for this kind of beautiful daylight look, which I can accomplish either with daylight or with strobe, which I'd, I never travel anywhere without strobes. And um, so we were trying to set up lights, and she has this enormous hood over her range. And I just could not, I couldn't light it. And... You know, we, and then there were little children, her grandchildren yeah. running around, and then her parents rolled into the kitchen, and they were hungry. And then in comes Joe Bastianich, and he wanted to talk to his mom about wine, and and you know somehow he pulled it off. Yeah. But she was lovely. She was just kept making gnocchi while I was setting up lights, and everyone was scrambling around trying to keep everything looking great. And again, we pulled it off. She was amazing. So who runs that house? It's the Lydia's uh, mom, right? She yeah, seems like she's I've still heard, alive. She's, I mean, I, she's strong. I, I'm hope, I, yeah, I think so. Her father was definitely. They were both elderly, lovely, mm-hmm. and ageless people. And you know, this, the thing that really sticks with me from that shoot is this incredible sense of family. And you know, again, my mom is from an Italian mm-hmm. family, and uh, it nice. just was beautiful to see that. You know, um, Mike Edison, who hosts uh, the Mike and Judy show, uh, two shows after mine, uh, he'll be here in, in an hour, actually just wrote Restaurant Man uh, by, you know, with Joe Bastianich. And it's real interesting to Excellent. hear how Lydia and Joe, uh, well, Lydia and her husband and eventually Joe started this restaurant in Queens. And then, uh, you know, that eventually got sold and, and they opened Becco and Felidia and all that. So it was an interesting uh, story. But that book is going to come out in about two weeks. So it's called Restaurant. Is that what it's called, Jack? Restaurant Man? That is what it's called. All right. Awesome. Well, very, very interesting. And now, did you have something in New York Magazine? Is that right? Um, New York Magazine. I've, I have shot for New York Magazine before, but it wasn't. It wasn't that. The, well, it's no. very, very I interesting. I want to shoot you. I want to shoot you and Anne. Really? So we're going to talk about that later. If you know, if you know your job, uh, you want to shoot Anne, not so much me. No, Patrick. But come on. Uh, no, well, that'd be nice. I think uh, I'd like you to come to our house. We uh, we've just invested in our seventh taxidermy piece. Excellent. Uh, we bought an armadillo. Great. And uh, it's real beautiful. Uh, taxidermy is so exciting. Uh, you know, we have you, a piranha, actually. You have a piranha? Have a piranha I have yeah. a piranha, too. I have, like, big poultry, you know, like a 35-pound turkey kind of taxidermy. Gorgeous. It's like, uh, yeah, Natural History Museum. So, yes, we can talk about that. But uh, this has been a really, really good show. Jack, how did this show rate? I would say it was one of the top... Uh, Sun- th- Sunday shows so far? One of the top five Sunday shows. So far? Have, yeah. Today. Today. All right. right. All right. I'll take that. <laughs> so, um, great job, Jack. Anything big happening this Sunday? I mean, this week that we should know about? Uh, uh, every week is a big week on Heritage. And listen yeah. to the shows. 25 shows, to the main 1 million course, listens. If you listen to the main course, check out some of the other shows. That's what I'll say. Yeah. yeah. We are the fifth best show on the network. So, there are four more better shows <laughs> than ours. No, uh, I wouldn't say who those are, but... Um, thanks so much for listening. Nick Andrew, thanks so much for coming in. Alexandra Rowley. Uh, people look to our website for more tags on her and what she does. And thanks for the Twitter question, and we'll see you next week. 
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.